What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Come on, people, my brothers and sisters. Don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Exactly right. Not only do I not wrestle on television, I had them empty this studio. I don't even want to talk with anybody behind me jeering, making any remarks. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Come on, bring it in. All you women sitting at home, you ain't dreaming. You seeing me live and in living color, the prettiest thing that's been on your television set ever, ever. You looking at the biggest man, the baddest man that ever been in the state of Alabama. Six feet, nine inches tall, 265 pounds, and daddy, I can do it. I want to tell these people something about the man they are looking at. First of all, you're looking at the man that was the youngest man in history to win the Georgia Heavyweight Championship. The youngest man in history to win the Florida Heavyweight Championship. The youngest man in history to win the Southern Heavyweight Championship. The youngest man ever to win the Southeastern Championship. And the man that is destined to be your next world's heavyweight champion. Now, I'm not concerned about this film you are talking about. I'm concerned about you people out there. I want all you rednecks to get up out of your chair right now and walk over to where the calendar is on the wall, right? And I want you to take a pencil out of that old shift row or whatever it is next to that calendar, and I want you to mark a big circle around this date because today, ladies and gentlemen, is a red-letter day for wrestling in the state of Alabama for one reason, because the stud has arrived. That's right, I am here, I'm going places, and wrestling is going places. It ain't like nothing you've seen before, believe it. 
Believe what I'm telling you, I'm the baddest that's ever been. I'm going to take care. I hear them talking about this tournament. I'm here to be the Alabama champion, and I am here to be the champion of you people. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today and powered by the icons of wrestling. This coming Royal Rumble weekend, head on out to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and join the two-man power trip of wrestling and the Four Horsemen for a weekend spectacular featuring a very rare meet-and-greet opportunity to get your photo taken with the Four Horsemen, including Ric Flair. And it's all going down in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the 2300 Arena. You can head on over to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Wrestling or our website, tmptofwrestling.com, for more information and for tickets right now, get on over there and you can join us in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Royal Rumble weekend and come get your picture taken with Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Barry Windham and J.J. Dillon. Diamonds are forever and so will be your picture with the Four Horsemen. So we hope to see you there this coming Royal Rumble weekend. But let's get on to our business here today. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today on the show, we have somebody who is brand new to the podcast world, somebody who the podcast was made for, as we are joined by the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. Now, Ron, getting himself into the podcast world has been quite a welcomed addition as we get to learn more about one of the more decorated families in the history of professional wrestling, the Fuller family and the entire Southeastern and Continental Territory, which we've talked about on the show with different guests that have been through the territory. It's one of the more forgotten, one of the more underrated territories that had so many famous people coming through it. It had so many people working their way through the business at a time where the territories were so important, but it is with the Continental Territory that we've gotten to learn so much more about the history of the Fuller family. And most importantly on this show, we did have Ron's brother, Robert Fuller, who you might remember as Colonel Rob Parker, on the show about two years ago where we went into a lot of detail on the history of the family and we get to fill in some pretty cool holes here with Ron Fuller as well. But when you think about Continental, like I said, you think about a lot of the the different superstars that came through there. But I think about the famous feud between Ron Fuller and Bob Armstrong, and it is something that we're going to hear a lot about on this interview. When you think about the bullet, you think about the mask, and right there next to him is going to be Ron Fuller and that famous look that he had and that attitude and that swagger that I think has been often duplicated but never replicated because Ron Fuller definitely in a class by himself when it came to the cocky heel. And we're going to hear a lot more about the infamous stories of the territories of the Fullers in a lot of detail. So, John, as I welcome you in here now, tell us a little bit more about the stud cast. Tell us a little bit more about what we have to look forward to today in this interview with Ron Fuller and all the great details to follow in what can be quite an educational walk down memory lane for some of our listeners. Yes, Chad, back at it again here at the two-man power trip of wrestling. And as we roll on into 2018 in a big way, we have on Ron Fuller, a man with a legendary 
family, huge lineage in the wrestling business, huge legacy in the family wrestling business, and it's been such a wild ride for him that now, after many years away from the business, he's back, and he's in the podcast game, and if anybody wants to check it out, it is the Studcast. It is available on iTunes and wherever you get your um, audio, wherever you get your, excuse me, wherever you get your podcast from. I was trying to think of, of, of what to say, but yeah, basically wherever you get your podcast from, iTunes, um, Google Play, or wherever you get it, look up the Studcast, find it, you'll find Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, you'll find his show on there, and it's an amazing look at maybe a, a lost or forgotten territory, maybe a lost or forgotten time in the business, but as he's finding out, and as we're finding out, maybe it's not so lost, maybe it's not so forgotten, there's so many old school fans out there that maybe don't like the current product, but they love old school wrestling, and they love their continental wrestling, and it's a great trip down memory lane with Ron Fuller, not only talking about Gulf Coast wrestling and how it transformed into Southeastern Championship wrestling, and how it then transformed into continental wrestling, we talk about the who, what, when, why, where, and how, about how well it all went down, and obviously it all starts with his grandfather, Roy Welsh, and how he basically got them all into the wrestling business, then goes down to his father, Buddy Fuller, and then obviously into himself, and to his brother, Colonel Rob Parker, a.k.a. Robert Fuller, and then also his cousin, Jimmy Golden. You may know him as Bunkhouse Bucks. There's a lot of family lineage there, like I mentioned, a lot of legacy, and a lot of fun talk about his family and how they got into the business and how they love the wrestling business. But we talk about how Ron left the business in 1988, owned a couple um, hockey teams, did a couple different business ventures, and kind of where he's been for the last 30 years or so as far as the wrestling business. And it's interesting that he's been able to kind of just pick off right right where he left off and just pick up and just keep, keep on rolling with the wrestling stuff. Because, you know, when you're gone since 1988, you think people are going to forget about you. you. You might think people might not, you know, know who you are or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But there's so many good old school fans out there. And that's why the stud cast has been as popular as it's been. And that's why you need to check out tnstud.com as well. Check out Ron Fuller's website. A lot of cool stuff on there. And there's even a, a stud store. So you can buy some Ron Fuller merchandise as well. Also in this interview, we do dissect of the issue with the footage. Is it really lost? Is it that, that quote-unquote lost territory? There's not been a lot of footage out there. Well, we discover that there is a fan in England that has somehow procured a lot of the tape library, and they're slowly but surely coming here to the U.S., and we're starting to get the footage, and Ron Fuller will have some continental wrestling footage, so that is awesome, because you will get your version of the Hatfields versus the McCoys. Yes, the Armstrongs versus the Fullers, and we discuss that from A to Z in this interview. We go all in-depth in it who won the feud who didn't win the feud is the feud over you know what is the big deal with those two how come they never really could get along and how come with them not really getting along they were able to have such a good chemistry for 15 years and have such a long and storied feud in the wrestling business one of the longest and one of the greatest feuds of all time if you're a true old school wrestling fan you will know what i'm talking about and last but not least i just want to mention one other thing we do talk about why they became Continental Wrestling and how that was kind of a 
versus Vince McMahon situation, and that was to combat Vince and the WWF, who obviously went national at that point. And we go in depth on an interesting story about how Continental almost got a great national TV deal, and Vince kind of ended up taking it instead. So, sit back. Relax and enjoy a little bit of the Tennessee stud, a little bit of some continental championship wrestling, a little bit of the Gulf Coast, a little bit of Southeastern. He is the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Absolutely. And as we mentioned on the show, we mentioned here in the intro as well, you can go back and listen to the episode with Ron Fuller's brother, Robert Fuller, that we did about two years ago where uh, we went into great detail, not only about, obviously, uh, what Robert Fuller did in his career, but we went into a lot of the history of the family. So anything that you might miss with Ron Fuller, fill in the gaps with his brother, Robert Fuller. It is a great look into, like John said, like I said before, Continental Wrestling, Southeastern Championship Wrestling. Whether it's considered a lost territory or not, it is one of the territories that I feel with this show, we have the ability to really get some of the inside stories out to the fans and help them go find some of that footage. So support Ron Fuller, support the stud cast, and great things to come out of that entity in the very near future. Much success and so many more big things to come. So all the best from the two-man power trip. So as we kind of move forward here, we got a lot of announcements that are going to be coming soon with our TMPT Con 2, which is going to be down the road a little bit in May, on May 19th, 2018 in Richmond, Virginia. But we hope you join us, and we just have some things that we're going to tie up here in a nice little package and start getting them announced to the public, some on-sale dates, as well as more information of some of the cool happenings that will be going on in Richmond, Virginia on May 19th, 2018. So appreciate the people who have been asking about it, and we love to uh, answer any questions you have. So please bring them on. Head on over to TMPTofWrestling.com for more information on TMPTCon2. And for anything else involving us, head on over to our Facebook page. Hit us up if you need us. And definitely continue to support as we move forward here into another huge year of 2018. So now, John, as the music starts to creep in, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business. And let's get it on over to the Tennessee stud himself, the one and only Ron Fuller. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTOfWrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Now, without any further ado, a former NWA 
Florida Heavyweight Champion, a former AWA Southern Heavyweight Champion, a former Continental Heavyweight Champion. He was an owner, a booker, a producer, a writer. You may know him as the Tennessee Stud. He is Ron Fuller. Please enjoy. Well, there never was a house like the Tennessee Stud. Along about 18 to 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. I never would have got through the Arkansas mud if I hadn't been a riding on the Tennessee Stud. I had some trouble with my sweetheart's paw. One of her brothers was a bad outlaw. I sent her a letter by my uncle Fudd, and I rode away on the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun, and his eyes were green. He had the nerve, and he had the blood, and there never was a horse like the Tennessee stud. Welcoming into the two-man power trip of wrestling is a former NWA Florida heavyweight champion, a former AWA Southern heavyweight champion, a former Continental heavyweight champion. You may know him as the Tennessee Stud or of the host of the Studcast podcast, which is available on iTunes and all your favorite apps. He is Ron Fuller. Ron, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be on the program. I'm big fans of you guys and what y'all doing. And uh, looking forward to having an opportunity to chat with you a little bit. Pretty awesome and pretty uh, honored that you have said you're a fan of the show, which is great. And we're a fan of the, the Studcast, which is your podcast. How did you kind of get that going? Obviously, you know, you got the family lineage. You guys have been in wrestling forever. But what kind of made you want to um, have your own podcast and get in the podcast game? Well, uh, it's because my, my family story's not been told. Um, and we've been uh, KPN people for four generations. Uh, my grandfather started wrestling in 1924. And uh, we've, uh, we've, been, we've got two more people in my family of professional wrestlers than in any family in the history of the sport. And we've been around for 93-plus years. Uh, we still got a fourth generation that's in the ring now. So we we just have uh, grown up, and that's a part of it. And uh, nobody in the family had ever told the story, and I just felt like it was time that somebody sat down, one of us, and just said, "Hey, let's let's get this out there and let people know what we're all about and where we came from." As far as your grandfather, obviously, you know, a wrestling legend, your father, a wrestling legend, and you guys kind of fell into the the footsteps of them. Did they want you to get into the pro wrestling game? Yeah, they did. Uh, my grandfather, I'm sure, did. Um, he wasn't so he wasn't so uh, cool about uh, Dad getting involved, but uh, Dad finally got himself involved anyway. And and uh, and we were trained. My brother and I, Dad, kind of uh, growing up, he taught us to, to shoot a little bit and to do what do what we needed to do to to handle uh, young guys at, uh, in school and stuff like that. They wanted challenges because the, my dad was a wrestler. Had a bunch of that, obviously, as a wrestler's son. It's kind of a tough life. Uh, you gotta be you got to be tough from an uh, early age. Uh, get involved and uh, learn a little wrestling so that you can, you can make it through your school days without having too much trouble. 
so much history, like you said, 93 years plus in wrestling, and then there's probably going to be some more with the you know, fourth generation and uh, wrestlers. But all that history and all that lineage, kind of like where does where does that kind of come from? Like, is that just ingrained in you from from your grandfather? Are you are you do you, you know do you just love the history of wrestling, or was it just because it was the family business? Uh, well, my grandfather got into wrestling. He was the first one that got into wrestling. Maybe a quick story about my granddad might tell, give people an idea of what, what kind of stock I come from. Uh, we were born, I've got a lot of Indian blood in me. Uh, my grandfather was born in, uh, Salisaw, Oklahoma back in 1902, way back in the day. And, uh, they lived, he had three brothers. They were all about the same age. He was the oldest one. And they lived on a little old farm, uh, didn't have anything. They had a few cows, and I think probably my great-granddad's the one that rustled the cows. I don't know how they got the cows, but they didn't have any money. They didn't even have shoes to wear back in the day. And uh, they moved into New Mexico, northern New Mexico. My dad, my granddad was about nine years old, and he told me the story many years ago about how they got, they had a few cows and it came wintertime. They needed to drive them off the northern plateau in, in New Mexico, get them into the south part of the state where it was warmer, and leave them there for a little bit. And they got uh, my grand, great granddad, he had a horse, and they had to walk. They didn't have any shoes on. Uh, so they drove about 10 cows. He said they had about 10 cows, and they drove them off the plateau in the northern part of the state down into the south. Uh, about 200 miles. He says they stayed out every night and they camped out uh, for probably a second. And he said while he was going, his granddad, my great-granddad, taught him how to wire rabbits out of a hole. He'd take the barbed wire and crank it up in a little long shaft and then a little handle thing on the top, and he would just run them down. So they leave him as a nine-year-old kid for three months out in the southern part of New Mexico by himself. So came up from a pretty tough heritage. The family had it tough in the, in the old days. And I think once they got into wrestling, it was probably easier than their life had been before. And so uh, my granddad uh, trained in Texas, in West Texas, uh, uh, around the oil. He used to work in the oil fields out there in Borger, Texas, and, and uh, trained with Cal Farley way back in the early 1900s, uh, the original Dutch Mantel. So I have a lineage that goes way, way back. And so, and it's just kind of uh, in my blood. And I was born and raised for it. I used to tell people that all the time, and I truly was. Uh, so we've had more than 20 people in our family that's either wrestled or refereed. Some of them promoters. We've had some promoters. My granddad owned it. He built the first big territory in the South. Uh, ran wrestling in 12 states. My dad... Uh, Ran wrestling all the time I was growing up, drew some of the biggest crowds in the history of the South, drew 40,000 people in Mobile, Alabama to see him wrestle Mario Glento, 38,000 in Atlanta, uh, big crowds uh, in Phoenix, uh, the biggest crowds in four different states that's ever been drawn in those states. And so I come from a background that's pretty, pretty unique and certainly uh, solidly set in the, in the wrestling vein, that's for sure. Definitely quite a history you have in the business for sure. And it's amazing some of the, those crowds that he was able to draw in, in the South as far as your father's concerned. When he was running at the Gulf Coast Wrestling and obviously his, 
his father before him. Was there ever any thoughts that you were going to just, you know, inherit the company and take it over? Was that always the game plan for you? Well, not really. You know, I, I really wanted to become a wrestler, obviously. I played basketball at the University of Miami. I was an all-state basketball player in high school in Georgia and had a scholarship at the University of Miami. And I probably maybe could have made a career out of basketball. I was a pretty decent basketball player, but I always wanted to be a wrestler. So it's what I always wanted to do. I really never expected them to hand me anything. Um, the first promotion that I ever built is I bought my I bought uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, from a gentleman that had been there for many many years, and made a territory out of one town, which is real unusual. Doesn't happen very often, and so I, you know I got to be a promoter by doing it on my own and going out and uh, doing it myself. At that same time, in the Nashville, Tennessee, my grandfather had his company. That's where it was located. He had a partner named Nick Goulas, and they were running in 12 states in the south at that point. Uh, my dad, at that same time, was actually uh, involved with the promotion in Florida, and Eddie Graham owned part of the company in Florida. So we've been all over the country and uh, been into a lot of different territories, started some of them myself, couple of new territories and it's just it's been a very interesting was a great way of life that's for sure now when you guys were kind of almost competing with each other you each kind of were owning your own territory is there something that you're learning from your father and your grandfather as far as the promotion aspect obviously eddie graham is quite a great mentor to have and obviously you know your father and grandfather as well but is there something you're learning along the way as far as the promotion end of it well, I mean, when you're a wrestler and, you know, when, when you grow up like I did in the wrestling business and you see your father's a wrestler and your grandfather was a wrestler, both of them were promoters as well, it didn't take me long to figure out as a wrestler that the big money is made by the promoter, not the wrestler. And so I always wanted to go in that direction. So I paid particular attention to everything. I watched things from way as a young guy. Uh, my grandfather used to take me to matches in Memphis. We li he lived in a little town about 80 miles north of there. I would go to the matches with him, watch the matches very closely, and we would talk. He would tell me lots of things about the old days and how he got in and that type of stuff. So I was I was a good student of the sport, and I, I really felt like I was going to be a promoter someday. So I watched everything closely, and as you said, I happened to have some great people around me, uh, Eddie Graham and my dad and my grandfather and uh, lots of other guys, uh, Les Wolf, old-timers that had been promoters and wrestlers and uh then just uh you know by being around the uh, people and other guys the funks i got friends thousands of wrestlers i'm familiar with and know from history of growing up in the sport and it's just it seems pretty simple for you when you grow up in it and uh, it's just what you get prepared to do and uh it's it this it's simple and easy for for it was for me i had some great success i was lucky and that's a very good success, but uh, it's it's just a great experience to come from that type of background. It gives you advantage, a super advantage in the sport of wrestling. So it's difficult for people to break into wrestling anyway, especially back in the older days, back in the 20s and 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It was hard to become a wrestler. You didn't have a friend. You didn't know somebody. Or you weren't a family member of a wrestler or whatever. You had a hard time becoming a wrestler.
breaking into business back then obviously was super tough, but when you're in the business and it's your family business, you know, it's got to be a little bit easier for you, but you really made a name for yourself on your own, you know, whether it be in championship um, wrestling from Florida kind of coming up, whether it be Georgia championship wrestling, whether it be, you know, CWA in Memphis, when you're kind of coming through and you're, you're making a name for yourself, what's kind of your, your end game? What, like, are you thinking at all about, you know, owning your own territory or as you're starting to just, you know, you said you just want to be a wrestler, but were you ever thinking big picture at that point? Oh yeah. Yeah. I started thinking about it. Actually, I was probably the youngest promoter to ever become a part of the national wrestling Alliance. I, I got involved in Knoxville and uh, named my company Southeastern championship wrestling uh, back in 1975, I had only been wrestling for five years. And I was, like I said, the youngest promoter probably maybe in history. I don't know anybody who was younger than that that got out and got started on their own, basically, and uh, opened their own business. And, and I was really lucky and was successful with it. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's where my focus was growing up. I knew I always wanted to wrestle, but... I also knew I wanted to promote. I wanted to run shows. I wanted to set up television programs and uh, and just uh, do the things that my dad and my granddad had done and and um, see if I could be as successful as they were. Kind of like a competition in a way. Definitely, which is really kind of cool that uh, you know the family business is wrestling and you're able to compete. And you're able to have different territories and obviously you know you eventually become the, the owner, the promoter of Southeastern Championship Wrestling, like you mentioned, and you're kind of expanding from that one territory, from Knoxville, Tennessee. You're kind of expanding to, to Florida, um, I guess a, a bit of Alabama as well. When you're kind of creating that and, and turning it into Continental, what's the reason of, of, of a name change like Southeast to Continental? Is it to compete with Vince as you're growing and you're trying to keep an eye on him as he's growing? Yes, that's kind of it. Uh, that's that's where Continental came from, basically, is I had Southeastern, and then I saw what was happening, and uh, so I combined the two businesses, uh, changed the name to Continental. I started doing a show in the, in our main arena with five 6,000 people. It made a big difference in the product I was out there, and it made me harder to compete with for Vince, and it probably helped me last a little longer than most, and... I probably uh, might have still been into wrestling had I not got into. I actually got into hockey after wrestling and, and uh, owned a couple of minor league hockey teams. And I've done a little bit of everything. Owned AGT dealership, had one of the most successful in the country, located in Tampa here. And it's just uh, I've done a lot of things in my life, uh, and I've been lucky. Most of them I've been pretty successful at. Yeah, very successful. And the outside wrestling ventures is definitely something that's kind of cool that, you know, you're able to prove you're not just all about wrestling. You can actually really make some money and really be a smart, wise businessman. But as far as uh, Continental goes and, and kind of trying to compete against Vince, was that kind of like an uphill battle where you're like, man, it's going to be really hard to compete against this guy who has a pretty strong stranglehold as it was? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're a pretty smart guy, you see at that point when 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 Vince got national television, 
then obviously he's going to be, uh, he's in the driver's seat. Uh, everything was regionalized uh, for many, many years. The National Relaxing Alliance is part of all of that. And everybody ran their own operations, but they tried not to put their television programs in somebody else's area because it, uh, it was just not done. And uh, Vince changed all that, obviously got the national program, and then he started to buy talent. Basically, he was picking up the best wrestlers in certain areas. And then he would take those guys back to wrestle against the guys that had developed them. And I developed a lot of talent for him, too, that he, he did very well with. Uh, and like a lot of other territories, uh, Hulk Hogan came from me. Uh, Honky Tonk Man came from me. Arn Anderson came from me. Uh, there's a lot of guys that we developed, young guys and stars, that went on to work for Vince. And it made it really hard when Vince wanted to bring those guys back and use them against you. Uh, we had some success against Vince early on. I mean, we 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 figured out how to compete with him as, as best we could. And one event in particular, he ran his matches in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, on two sets of the two sides of the freeway, Interstate 20. There, there's a building that holds about 15,000. The convention center across the street from it was the building we were running in. It held about 8,000, called Boutwell. He ran on the same night we did. Uh, he brought Hulk, he brought Honky Tonk, he brought several different guys that we had developed, and people knew those guys. And the same night, we had a two-ring battle royal. We lowered our ticket prices. We actually drew, We uh, Hogan came over because they were friends. Uh, Honky Tonk worked for me for a long time. Hogan worked for me for a long time. They came over to watch our matches. They had 2,000 people, and we had 9,000. Mm. So... You know, they were like astounded. They were like, wow, how did you do this, man? How are you doing this? How did you draw this type of house? And we're right across the street. So, I mean, we tried to we tried to compete, but I, I had a feeling that it was kind of like I could see the writing on the wall. Uh, it was not going to work, and you weren't going to be able to compete with him, and it weren't going to beat him. I could have maybe done so, and, uh, so far as that. I had an opportunity in 1985. I had a company that took Continental Wrestling, and they sold it in the Middle East for me. And they got really hot on my talent and my program, and they had a connection with NBC. Same thing where Vince went. And uh, I, they talked to me, and they said, Ron, they're looking for a national TV show. Your program is great. You've got super talent. We want to try to get you on. And I turned them down because I was a member of the NWA, and I couldn't see how if I became a national product and uh, how everybody else in the National Wrestling Alliance would have been scared to death of me, and they, they, it would have made my life difficult. And I chose at that point to turn down the opportunity to, to make a run at that and Vince, and the rest pretty much history. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not really pleased with where the wrestling business is today. I mean, you know, had it been handled there, someone else had got their foot in that door and handled it differently. I think it could be a whole different product than what it has become with events. So do you follow current wrestling today? Or are you watching it or you don't really care too much about it? I don't watch it. Uh, I've watched it a few times for a few minutes, but I mean, it's, it's so far removed from the old style 
that it just, I don't see it. I mean, I, it just doesn't happen to, for me. And then, you know, fans that, old style fans, and there are so many of them I'm finding by doing my stud cast and the response I get, there are so many fans, old timers, old school, that just cannot get into what Vince does. And and that's who I race, basically talk to. That's who I I bring back names of them for them that they haven't heard. And I've, since I traveled everywhere, I wrestled in Japan and Australia, Canada, Mexico, and uh, Europe and Africa. Uh, I've got great. I've been everywhere. So, you know, I have a I have a real feel for talent all over the world and what it was back in the old day. And once I got out in 1988 and sold Continental. I, uh, within two years or less than two years, I, I owned two hockey teams and, and I was totally in a different direction. Really never looked back. I mean, I really enjoyed hockey too. That's a tremendous sport in itself. It is pretty cool that you kind of brought it back to the old school because I'm sure a lot of fans missed you after 1988. They haven't heard much from you, haven't seen much from you. Really awesome that the Studcast is out there, especially for some old school fans that are dying for some old school stuff rather than some of this new current wrestling that's going on. Now, as far as the Studcast, I mean, and, and you, when you think of the Fullers and you think of Ron Fuller, you always think of the Armstrongs. You get that a lot, you know, with your show and everything. People are always talking about not only you, but they're always talking about the Armstrongs. You guys kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. You guys go together hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what happened is uh, early on, uh, actually, Bob Armstrong started in about 1960, mid-60s, and he started wrestling for my dad. My dad was a promoter in Georgia and Atlanta. And uh, Bob Armstrong started there. Uh, he came and started wrestling for me in 1975 in Southeastern, and he and he never left. I mean, uh, I loved him. He was a great talent. Uh, his boys were young at that point, but uh, he got involved when I went to Southeastern in Pensacola. He got uh, I worked an arrangement with him, and he owned part of that company with me. And we were like family. And I grew up with his boys, with Scott and Brian and Steve and Brad. I mean, the whole group. It was a, it was a, like a, being a part of a big, huge family. And we just got along great, uh, fabulous. And uh, we just kept working angles back and forth between us. One would go babyface, another would go heel. And I had a brother, I had a cousin. It was a natural fit for uh for us to do something like happened and and it just continued on and on and on it probably i think it probably went for 15 years close to it that uh that we worked as a as two families uh basically in the same business same company yeah really i mean your brother obviously uh rob and cousin jimmy golden many people might know him as bunkhouse buck but you guys and obviously the fuller name is shooting with the Armstrongs, whether it be Brad, Steve, Brian, uh, Scott, obviously Bullet Bob being at the crux of it all. Was that just something that, that as soon as that chemistry went off, you're like, man, the longevity of this is just going to be crazy. It's going to be off the charts. That's something you sensed kind of early on because that's a long extended feud for, you know, wrestling feud. 
Yeah, it's probably maybe one of the longest ever in history. It actually didn't start out that way. We were baby faces, all of us, Bob, uh, me, Rob, and Jimmy, in uh, Knoxville for many, many years. I went in as a heel and turned about a year in. And But once we went to Pensacola and we moved to the Southern Division down there, that's when we started really tinkering with with that Armstrong and Fuller combination and that, uh, what we could develop out of that. And once Bob's boys started to get older and develop, Brad, as an example, was the first and was a tremendously talented guy, great kid. Uh, just And then along after him came Scott and Steve. I mean, Brian never actually worked for Southeastern. I think he, he came along later. But... Those boys were just phenomenal in the ring. Bob was always one of the greatest, and, and it just—it was a natural thing for us. It was a great fit, and and I think uh, we made a career out of it. I mean, Bob made a career out of it. His boys uh, in the early part of their their lives, they made a career out of it. It was a fabulous era. When every time I'm around Bob and we sit and talk, we talk about how wonderful that those '80s were. Uh, in Pensacola and along the Gulf Coast there, all the way. At one time, we were running from uh, Pensacola, Florida, to Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, quite a bit of area when the Continental was really firing. Uh, we were we were really we were covering a lot a lot of miles for sure. Which is great and shows you how you guys are drawing so well in the Armstrongs versus the Fullers is definitely a great feud. Enter in kind of. The bullet, bullet Bob with the mask, and the Tennessee stud with the mask. Was that kind of your homage to him, or was he kind of doing an homage to you? Who kind of wore the mask first, as far as that cool kind of different mask gimmick that you guys did? I think probably I did. Uh, I believe that I started wearing one in the late, uh, the late seventies, uh, seventy-seven, seventy-eight, uh, and it usually developed out of some type of lose or leave town match you'd lose that lose or leave town match and then you'd come back with the mask on as as whatever name and uh i kind of picked up that name the tennessee stud when i first went to tennessee i've been in wrestling in florida for four years almost and went to tennessee and couldn't figure out what i wanted to do with myself and i was riding along the road one night and heard that old song the tennessee stud and I was like, wow, that's me. Right there's my deal. And uh, I just kind of took that name on. And uh, then once I put the mask on, I just called myself the Tennessee Stud. And then it worked. And and as time went on, Bob ended up doing it once we got to Florida. Once we got down into Pensacola, that's kind of how he became the bullet. And he lost the loser leave to me and ended up coming back as the bullet. It, it really... Uh, it was a great run for us and you know, uh, pretty historical. I mean, I see a tremendous amount of stuff on YouTube and places like that. A lot of those old Southeastern and continental shows are, are just gone. You can't find them. And some people call it the lost territory, but, uh, the, it was a really great period of time to be involved in the sport. And we were really kicking some butt everywhere we went. We didn't, it wasn't just the Fullers and the, and the Armstrongs, we had some great talent, and I named a few of them that we built and came up, but uh, we developed a lot of talent and had a lot of great wrestlers through through all those three territories over that 15-year period of time. 
the lost territory for sure. Who actually owns that footage right now? Because I know there's so many fans that always ask, like, how come that's on the, not on the WWE Network, or how come you know we can't find it? Where is the footage, and who owns it? Well, actually, there's no footage. Some footage of it still remains, but we didn't save programs. We didn't save tapes. Uh, there was no reason back in the 70s or 80s to save your program because uh, you expected to be there forever. And so, you know, a lot of it's gotten away. But uh, oddly enough, I have a gentleman that works with me uh, out of West Virginia that has found a continent of a bevy, a huge stack, maybe as many as three years of continental wrestling from a guy in England. And I don't know how they got to England, but uh, there's about to be some on the on the horizon here that are going to be sold, and uh, they're piecing it together now. I'm a part of that, trying to help them put it together properly. And I think a lot of people who have never seen that program before will probably be pretty amazed at the talent that was there and the, and the type of things we were doing back in those days. That is awesome. That is good news, and that's great to hear. I kind of want to see some of that footage maybe leak its way out to YouTube or, or wherever we so people can enjoy it and fans can see it because the, the stud stable is something that fans are going to love, and maybe they've heard of it in WCW, but the original stud stable was something you know created in Continental, What's the, the history of, of the formation of the stud stable? Well, uh, that all goes back to one of those those uh, deals that we did with Bob and I, and uh, he he uh, he he really uh, messed me up and tore my knee. Him and uh, Flair in a match in Mobile in 1982, and after that, I was out for a while. Took my leg, took my knee a while to get well, and once I came back. Uh, Bob had turned heel at that point, and uh, that it made me. I was uh, I was the opposite at that point. They hadn't liked me, but then they did like me, and uh, I formed the stable. I just said, "Hey, I'm gonna uh, I'm not gonna wrestle every night because I have knee problems, so I'm going to have my own stable." And I put together quite a group of guys. There's some really really talented guys. Uh, humongous. I don't know if you've ever seen that guy. Lord Humongous, he was there. Uh, Arn Anderson was in my stable. Jimmy Golden was in my stable. Uh, I had I had a tremendous group of guys there that wrestled for me, basically underneath me, and uh, that was a great run. There was really a, a time frame there, probably eighty four, eighty five, in which we were drawing some of the biggest crowds in America and doing tremendous business and. And some of that, that footage is available. In fact, uh, I've looked over some of this footage. It's been coming out of England, and, and there's a lot of that, that stunt staple stuff that are, that's going to be available, and people will be able to, to take a look finally and see what Continental is all about. So cool. You know, if, if you're a real good old-school fan of wrestling, you will love Continental. There's so many good hot angles. So many great names, so many great wrestlers from that territory, so many cool characters, and perhaps none bigger physically than a guy like Andre the Giant. And I know you have a lot of good stories from him. I don't want to take away from the stud cast at all because I know there's a big Andre the Giant um, two-parter coming out on him. 
But can you just share just a little bit of, of bringing Andre into Continental? Oh, yeah. Well, Con- Andre started working for me when I was in Knoxville originally in, with Southeastern. And that's the first time he came and did much for me. Uh, Andre came over a period of years, wrestled in that company, wrestled in that Southern Division out of Pensacola. He wrestled in Continental for me. Uh, and I've, I've got a super stud cast coming out on Sunday. I think it's going to be Sunday. It's going to break out on the 14th of January to our just about Andre, an entire two hours on Andre. I've never done one of these before. And Andre and I were personal friends for 16 years. I just really love Andre. He was just like a, like a brother to me. And uh, I'd kind of doing a tribute for him. Uh, he's a fantastic and phenomenal not just a talent but a great person and a great guy too and uh so yeah he worked for me a whole bunch of different times and and i always enjoyed being with him yeah a lot of times he would stay in my home when he'd come to work for me i would just bring him home and you know i would take him on the road with me and uh, he'd travel with me in these vans i'd have conversion vans and stuff that fit him properly and he loved coming and being with me uh, I got a lot of great Andre stories, all of them in this Super Stud cast. I mean, I didn't leave any of them out. Uh, Andre is just a phenomenal, phenomenal topic, and I just really enjoyed that, that two hours. That is great. I don't want to take away too much uh, from that, but that is something definitely that fans should uh, want to listen to and look out for. Now, as far as the Armstrongs and the Fullers, if I can just go back to them for a second, I know they had you guys had the big blow-away match, the big steel cage match, and the Armstrongs kind of come away with the win. But who would you say really won that feud between the Armstrongs and the Fullers, or did it never really end? I don't think it ever really ended, to be honest with you. I don't think it had a very – it didn't have a clear ending if there was an ending. Uh, I quit in 1988. Uh, the bobbin obviously continued. He's still out there doing it. And uh, – so the boys obviously continued doing it, uh, but about that same time we closed Continental, and they kind of everybody went their separate ways. Rob and Jimmy went to work out of out of uh, Memphis, and uh, was working quite a bit with Yvonne Erics in Texas. And things changed dramatically after Continental shut down, but uh, it was it it never really had an ending. You couldn't say, well, we were the better group or they were the better group. Uh, it's just, uh, I think what we managed to do is we managed to have two families that feuded for at least a six or seven year straight period. Uh, practically every week there was something else different going on and managed to keep our audience and build our audience at the same time. Uh, pretty hard to do that with uh, with the same group of guys. It's very, very difficult to do that. But we had happened to all be pretty decent workers, and uh, and we had great storyline, and we had we had a lot of things going on. We entertained people probably as good or better than any promotion in the country. Such a great lost territory that people really need to start you know developing more time and really looking into so much great stuff but when you were there what was your favorite part did you like the writing the booking the producing tv the house shows wrestling what was your kind of favorite aspect of being in charge of continental i just i always just loved the entire business i loved every bit of it i loved the wrestling and going in the ring i loved having a good match i loved the 
for the booking. I love configuring what's going to happen and 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 just blowing people's minds and and trying to stay two steps ahead, not one ahead, but two steps ahead of the average fan where they go, wow, I wouldn't, I didn't see that, I didn't see that, I I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. So, you know, that part of it was great. I love the television. In my first company in Southeastern Championship Wrestling in Knoxville, I probably had the most inventive and creative wrestling program in America. I was the first one to ever do instant replays. I was the first one to do split screen. I did all kinds of deals with that program and with that. So I liked every part of it. It was always, the wrestling business was so interesting to me and, I guess that's from growing up in it and and just riding up and down the road. Just a great life. It was a phenomenal life and riding up and down the roads and talking business and and being around people that you like and you admire and and having fun and laughing. It, it was a. It's you know it, nothing is better than that. Nothing's better than being a being a wrestler in a territory that's on fire, doing great business, and everybody in that dressing room getting along. And as we start to wind it down a bit here, Continental for a period of time was definitely on a roll, hitting all strides. But as far as you and wrestling, you mentioned wrestling in obviously the the southeast was was kind of your hub, kind of a a big part of your career. But Japan, Mexico, Europe, um, Africa, you mentioned. Was there a favorite place that you actually ended up wrestling? Would it be the Southeast, or would it be one of the many, many countries you ended up wrestling in as well? I loved uh, Australia. I was in Australia twice, uh, first time for two weeks and the second time for three months. And in that three months in Australia, I, I could have moved there. I mean, I really, really liked that country. Uh, uh, Japan, you know, Japan's always good. It's good for the money, you know, but it's a pretty tough, it's a pretty rough tour when you make those uh, Japanese tours. Uh, the shots I've taken in uh, Europe were short, uh, two nights, two, three days, you know, in and out, that type of stuff. One shot in Africa, Algiers, uh, not much stuff, uh, not there for any length of time, but I really enjoyed Australia. And I have a tremendous amount of stories about that country and about my experiences there, as well as everywhere else. I mean, the, the good thing about uh, doing those places and going everywhere uh, is you, you you get to do a lot of different things and see a lot of different things. And that's what's helped me with this stud cast. I, I never run out of stories. I just I get telling one, and I got two more that pop into my head while I'm telling that one. So it's just been great, and and I really enjoy the studcast because it just gives me an opportunity not just to talk about my family, very not much is known about my family compared to most, but at the same time just to be able to tell stories to fans out there that they they go away going, gee, I never heard anything like that. So it's a, it's it's a, it's a privilege and it's an honor. It's humbling. Because they, you know, got a pretty decent audience, and it grows every week. And I just really enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy what I'm doing. As far as some of your favorite matches, I know obviously you know the Armstrongs might be tied into that, and some great matches. You kind of mentioned Japan, obviously working in all Japan with guys like uh, Baba and Masawa and Brody and Hanson 
and the Funk, Story Funk, Terry Funk, and, and Jumbo. I mean, there's so many great guys you worked with, and those names in Japan obviously stick out. But what would you consider to be kind of your favorite match or maybe a couple of favorite matches, maybe even that 60-minute draw against the Nature Boy? Yeah, uh, I've had a I've had a draw with uh, with Flair. Uh, one of my favorite matches of all time was uh, an hour and five minutes I did with Hardy in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, biggest crowd to ever see an event in the Coliseum there, and one of those matches where it just everything clicks and. No, that's just phenomenal. You get those goosebumps on you, man, when the crowd is just roaring. And, uh, they, you know, a lot of great matches. I've worked with, I, I counted it up one time, I worked with uh, nine world champions over my career. And, uh, you know, I've had Jack Briscoe. I've had wonderful matches with Jack Briscoe. I've had great matches with uh, Terry Funk, super matches with Terry uh, Jr., Dory Jr. I mean, so I've, I've been I've been really blessed to have the opportunity to wrestle with some of the greatest, and uh, you know. But Harley, I'd have to say that's one of my favorite matches of all time. A match I had in 1977 in Knoxville with Harley. That uh, some people here, I still see. I run into people in Tennessee, and they say it was the greatest match I ever saw in my life. Uh, that's always a great compliment. You get that from some fan. Uh, that's that's what you're that's what you're in there for. Absolutely, and you've had such a long storied career. Is it true that I guess WCW at one point was trying to work with you, or were you helping them promote shows? What was that about? Were they trying to bring you in at any point? Well, Rob worked for them. Rob went in there and worked for them as Colonel Parker. Yes. Uh, and he managed uh, Steve Austin. He managed Sid Vicious during that run. He managed, let's uh, uh, say, Dick Slater and then uh, Jimmy. My cousin Jimmy is a bunkhouse buck. Uh, uh, Ming was his, his guy that uh, took care of him. Uh, uh, and I was in there earlier, before Rob was there, when it basically was uh, still on, on Superstation. And and uh, I, I used to go in there and work in 84 and 85 quite a bit because it had that satellite. It was still satellite, and it was still seen worldwide. And when I was wanting to take off and take any time out of Continental, I would go in there because I got that exposure. I was actually, we actually, company actually ran some of the islands in the Caribbean. Uh, Continental ran the uh, Cayman Islands and some of the places in the Caribbean, and we utilized that WCW uh, exposure. Uh, Bob went in there and worked. Bob Armstrong would do the same thing uh, in 83, 84, 85, running there for two, three, four, three, four months stints. And, yeah, I always got along great with all those promoters. I got along great with uh, with Barnett. I got along great with Ole. I got along great with a lot of people that were in and out of there, Watts, uh, just a bunch of different guys. And, yeah, I, I was we, we worked with a lot of different promoters around the country and had a great relationship with them. And, so it, and uh, that's a part of the business that's a shame that's not there anymore. You had all of those elements and all those different guys that had to work their asses off to create a great territory and 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 provide great talent and great matches for the people and now it's basically down to one and and the matches certainly I don't believe are are as good as what they were back in those days. 
times are definitely changing, and the the new school isn't definitely as good as the old school was. And kind of one a big question that I wanted to ask you was kind of it's about you, but maybe about your family as well. And what do you think would be the the lasting legacy on the business of the legendary Fuller family and, and yourself? What would you say would be the final kind of stamp that you guys left in the business when you're looking back at it? What what is that lasting legacy? Well, my grandfather did so many things for this business. Uh, when he started out, he, he introduced tag team wrestling because he had two brothers. Uh, he had the first wrestling bear ever, trained the first wrestling bear. She had all her teeth and all her claws. Uh, he, he, he set the, he set the pace for all of us as a family. And my dad comes along and draws the four largest crowds ever drawn in the state of Alabama, the state of Georgia, the state of Tennessee and Arizona. He has the four biggest crowds ever. Uh, then I come along my generation, me, Rob, Jimmy, and we do continental, we do Southeastern, uh, we, I think our legacy probably is, is the fact that I looked one time and one of my stud casts and did the figures. My grandfather ran this first territory for 30 years and ran three towns a night. And I figured out that he probably drew 58 million people in his time frame. And my dad's probably drawn another 40 million. And I think we're probably somewhere around 40 million. We've touched the lives of so many wrestling fans, especially in the South, because we were predominantly in the South. But I think that's the legacy right there. I feel like we've touched a lot of fans' lives. And and they don't forget. And the fact that they, they're they tuning into the stud cast and that type of thing is a perfect prime example of that. They just don't forget. I've been a gone since 1988, and I kind of come back out of nowhere. And they're just they're still there. They want to know it. They want to hear it. They want to relive it, that past, that past that we all have uh, of the great wrestling back in the day. If you enjoyed this episode out there, folks, please follow um, Ron Fuller on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welsh. And obviously, please, because we barely scratched the surface here, find on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, find the Studcast. And Ron Fuller will give you a wrestling history lesson like no other. So much cool old school stuff in there. So I highly, highly encourage you because we only merely scratch the surface here. You want to find the Studcast and listen to that podcast. Mr. Fuller, am I missing anything? Where else can the fans find you, find your podcast, anything else that I missed? Well, I've got a website, and the website is TN Stud. Uh, it's Tennessee Stud, TNStud.com. And uh, obviously everything, I have the Studcaster on there. You, If you don't get them on iTunes or any other of the podcast outlets, and you want to just go to the website, the website's got matches on it. It's got gallery on it. There's phenomenal it's got all kinds of old stars and younger guys too uh so you know and i think you pretty well hit everything else i'm on facebook at ron fuller tennessee stud and that's tennessee spelled out and uh you know yeah i I do i try to touch base with fans on social media i think it's important that we that we appreciate the fans the way they appreciate us and i try to stay in contact with them and 
I think that's pretty well covered it. If you want to hear an Andre story, an unbelievable account of Andre, that starts on Sunday the 14th, and uh, it's available on, on that website as well, tnstud.com, the Super Studcast, and uh, and you can you can be uh, the judge if uh, if there's a better Andre ever out there, a better account of Andre. I'd like to hear it myself. I'll I'll buy I'll buy it to hear it myself. <laughs> Awesome, and when you're on tnstud.com, also hit up the stud store. And Mr. Fuller, thank you so much. Honored to have you on, and been a, a whirl of a time. And thank you for the stories you, you shared with me, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And you guys keep doing what you're doing. Y'all are kicking butt, and uh, you know I'm just uh, proud to have the opportunity to come on the program. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.